Um, as you're turning to Daniel 7, uh, I just want to let you know what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 7 uh, fully, but I'm just going to read as by way of intro just the first eight verses and then we'll, we'll study all of it. So if you would, if you're able, stand with me as we read Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 through 8. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, as you're saying, thanks be to God, you're just thanking God that he would be so kind and gracious to us to speak to us by giving us his word. But also let it be for you, when you say, thanks be to God, a time where whatever you learn from the Bible today, that you would say, God, I want to obey those things. The things that you teach me today, I want to say yes and obey them. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and the First year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream, a vision of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in his mouth, behold, I'm sorry, between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Then after this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings on its birds on its, like four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It de devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left in its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came from them another horn, a little one, before which the first three, uh, before which three of the first four of the first horns were plucked uh, up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and mouth speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, we pray for a special measure of, of help this morning from the Holy Spirit as we look at apocalyptic literature, as we look at things with lots of metaphor and descriptions of things we've never heard of or seen, that you would give us wisdom and insight to see and understand and know what's going on. Uh, but more than that, Lord, that we wouldn't just understand it, but that we would see how it applies to our lives, that we would want to live differently, and that we would also, ultimately, God, have our minds and hearts pointed to Jesus um, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who gave his life for us, and who would see how um, this chapter and every chapter of the Bible is about him, and that we would want to worship him with our lives. Be with us now as we look into your text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you've been with us, you'll know a little bit about what's going on in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 is a shift from what we've been reading. If you've been with us, uh, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are just like... Uh, dropping in and seeing a story of Daniel and his compadres and dropping in a little bit later in his life and seeing a story of Daniel and how Daniel was kind of interacting with a king. Six little story narratives. Well, seven, as we just read, is not a story narrative, right? Chapter six to chapter seven is a huge shift from narrative over to apocalyptic literature. And it's away from, uh, away from the, the narrative. Now, Daniel chapter seven um, has something unique about it compared to what we've been looking through. So uh, as Daniel was writing, for some reason, uh, and probably because he wants to show that God's the God of all nations, Daniel chapter 1, whenever they were still in Israel, it was written in Hebrew. And then when he got to chapter 2, he switched from writing into Hebrew and started writing in Aramaic. And in 2 through 7, he wrote those chapters in the language of Aramaic. And then when you get to 8, it switches back to Hebrew and he keeps going. So what's interesting about 2 through 7 is chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 are uh, about narrative and then seven's apocalyptic. And so it's a little bit unique in that it's written in Aramaic like the others, but it switches from narrative over to apocalyptic literature. Now, uh, something that we've noticed and we've talked about also is uh, two and seven, the way he wrote two and seven, three and six, four and five is building into a crescendo. And so therefore 
2 and 7 mirror each other in what's going on and what's the major thrust of it. If you remember chapter 2 was about the statue and how each statue, part of the statue represented a kingdom and how King Jesus is going to destroy the statue and then all of a sudden uh, he's going to rule and reign. The same message is being chapter 7 except it's beasts. These particular beasts that, like we just read are going to be different kingdoms. Jesus is going to come here, rule and reign and so... Th- the same message of chapter 2 is chapter 7, Jesus is king. So that's the sermon we can have. That's, I'm just kidding. So uh, that's 2 through 7, right? But then if you look at 4 and, I'm sorry, 3 and 6, they have a very similar message as well. Where you have uh, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery pit and Daniel in the lion's den and God delivers them away. So the message of those two are God delivers. And then 4 and 5, very similar, king uh, and another king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, want, they're both terrible. One has a kind of a redemptive moment, but the other one's really terrible. And so they're, they're building and trying to mirror each other as they do that because they're telling the same kind of story. Well, seven, as we're looking at today, as I said, mirrors two in the whole statue. Uh, and it's, but instead of a statue of gold, silver, bronze, etc., it's a list of four beasts. Same four kingdoms as he's describing them. Same essential message uh, that Jesus is the king that we're going to look at it. Now, everything that's in the book of Daniel has led up to chapter 7. The point, though, if you're like, well, what's the point then of all the narrative? Why not just start in chapter 7 and just tell us all the, how it all ends? Well, the point is this. If you remember, as we've been reading through 1 through 6, story, 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 what we've seen about Daniel is teenager in chapters 1 all the way to 80-year-old in chapter man, this is a man that lives for the Lord. Day in, day out, he prays. Day in, day out, he's a man of integrity. Day in, day out, he, he knows exactly what to do. And so chapters one through six, essentially, is helping us understand that everything's led to this section, that Daniel has a message, and it's chapter seven through 12. And he wants you to know that you can believe this message that he's given to you in chapter 7 through 12 because you've seen the kind of man he is in Daniel 1 through 6. Daniel 1 through 6 builds his credentials as a reliable person so that when he gives us this message, we can trust it in 7 through 12. That this amazing message is absolutely true because it's coming from Daniel. You know, it's not coming from Joe Blow in random Babylon, right? This is, this is an amazing man of God. And so... The point of 1 through 6 is to show us how awesome he is. Not more awesome than Jesus, but still a man of God. Daniel 7, when we see eschatological language, whenever we see apocalyptic literature about beasts and animals that look like certain animals but aren't certain animals, and you start reading, like, what's this about? Well, don't miss the forest for the trees, right? Who is Daniel writing to first? Whenever it's hermeneutics 101, or Bible interpretation 101, what does it mean to the original hearers? Whatever it means to the original hearers is what it means to us. So the point isn't for 19th and 20th and 21st century theologians to study end times and debate about what stuff is. That's not why this was written. Instead, this was written to Daniel in the middle of, as you see, in the first year of Belshazzar. So right after uh, Nebuchadnezzar dies, still in, the, in, the, in Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, or whoever it is, isn't in charge. It's just terrible, right? These are the people that came into their, ta- into their city, killed them, most of them, took most of them out, and put them in the middle of decadent Babylon. These are the people. And so they're just totally despairing. Like, we did have a kingdom. We did have a, a thing going on. We, did, we had a theocracy where God was the king. We, we didn't obey God, and so it was taken away from us. And now these pagans rule and reign over us. Why is, why is this all this happening? And Daniel's writing this chapter right here to say, things are bad. Things are bad, but they're about to get really good one day. And so the point of, it, of chapter seven, as you read about these beasts, is not to get into the beast too much, but instead to remember that it's mainly about, for, these, for the exiled Israelites, hope in the middle of terrible times. And so for the church today, the message is the same. Hope in the middle of terrible times. So uh, one writer says it this way. The author's goal in writing Daniel chapter 7 was not to satisfy people's curiosity about the end times. God's people in chapter 7 were suffering in exile. They were far away from the promised land. And they felt abandoned. They, they felt, they weren't, they felt abandoned by God. And they were losing hope. So Daniel's goal with this chapter 7, this message, was to assure God's people in exile that God is sovereign and in control of all empires, even the evil empire that they're in. And will in the end give his people, the Lord's people, the church, everlasting kingdom through the divine son. And so if that's the point for them, that's the point for us. Come to where we are right now, where we live. The point is 
for us, Daniel chapter 7, is that God reigns over all nations. Ours and every other nation in this world, God reigns over them and will finally defeat every nation through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, whenever he took on flesh. That's the point of Daniel chapter 7. Now, we're going to get into some of the details and all that kind of stuff, but I wanted to make sure you see what's going on. One other note, which is just amazing. Um, Daniel is, he's a genius. And so he didn't just design two through seven to come into this chiastic structure at the, at the pinnacle, but all of the book actually, one through 12, comes into a pinnacle point. And so the pinnacle of the entire book is what we're going to look at in Daniel chapter seven, which is, I didn't read it, but if you look at Daniel chapter nine, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter seven, starting at verse nine over to verse 14, this seven, I'm sorry, seven, nine through 14 uh, is after he has that vision, he has this Uh, Next vision where he literally goes into the throne room and sees the throne room. And then he goes back and describes the interpretation of what he saw in verse 15. So uh, 7, 9 through 14 is is the culmination pinnacle of the entire book of Daniel. And so while for me it's just kind of point two out of three, uh, what we're going to do because there's so much in Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 14 is I'm going to preach all of seven, and I'm just going to breeze through that little section on seven, nine through 14. And then after Easter, we're going to come back and seven, nine through 14 is going to get its own sermon. Chris will exposit just that one section of the visit to the throne room for us in two weeks, which is going to be awesome. So uh, I'm not going to take too much of a thunder as I breeze through it because I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to mess you up. So anyway, um, anyway, Chris will be preaching that one of our other elders. So, uh, The main thing that I want you to see in chapter 7, though, is God is sovereign over all. All kingdoms, all nations, all times, all things. God is sovereign over all. And he's going to display that to us in three different ways. That is, he's in control of all the nations. He's in control of his kingdom. He's in charge of entirely of all history. He's in charge of the nations. He's in charge of his kingdom. And he's in charge of history completely. So we'll see those three as we go. So so number one, God is in control of the nations. I'm going to put it up. Number one, God is in control of the nations. That's what the point is in verses 1 through 8. And as we see how God is in control of all the nations, what he's going to do to us in 1 through 8 is, in a way, give us the path of history and how it's ruled by wretched sinners. Every kingdom is ruled by a wretched sinner because everybody's a wretched sinner. Like We are too. We just happen to be, if you're in Christ, but we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so in verses 1 through 8, it's going to show us this. And so let's read... uh, and go through as we see. So it says in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, he's just wanting you to know. So he's actually going back in chronological time because we have, we've already gotten, as we went through one through six to the Medo-Persian empire, he's going back into the Babylonian empire, specifically, basically the second king, really the fourth after Nebuchadnezzar, when we get to Belshazzar. Belshazzar is king in chapter five. If you remember chapter five, the really terrible guy that throws the big party with thousands of people um, has the house party. So in, in the first year of Belshazzar is whenever he had the dream. Around 550 BC is whenever this happened. And then it says, as he lay in his bed, he wrote down in the dream and told the sum of the matter. So this vision is what's, how it's all going to go down. Very similar to chapter two. And he says, Daniel declared this. I saw in my vision by night and behold, I don't want you to miss this, the four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven are bringing this about. We're about to see these beasts who represent kingdoms who are terrible people. Who sets it up? Heaven. God's in control. God's in control here. And then it says, who are stirring up a great sea and the four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. And so what follows here is these four great beasts. Now, these four great beasts, you can make, what are they? We don't have to wonder. Because verse 17 tells us what the four great beasts are. So if you look with me at verse 17, we'll already know. So as we go through it, verse 17 says, These four great beasts are the four kings who arise out of the earth. So we know who they are. We already know. And we already know from Daniel chapter 2 that it's the uh, Babylonian Empire, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greece Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And so um, and they even say it like, you're the head. And so we know that it's the, the Babylonian power as you go down the statue. So anyway, so here we go. But instead of a statue, he's going to do them by beasts. And I'll, I'll, I'll point them out and make a little comment. And I have a little way to remember. Uh, and I even alliterated it but with the letter D just for fun. So here we are. Um, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So picture it. Here's a lion, but he's got big eagle's wings. That's, that's not normal. Uh, and then it says, as I looked, the wings were plucked off and it was lifted up. 
uh, off the ground, made from the ground, and made to stand on two feet. So he got a lion, and he's got eagle's wings, and he rips them off, and all of a sudden the lion on four stands up on two feet like a man, and it was given the mind of a man, it was given to it. Okay, so that's the mental picture. Number one, you can go ahead and put it up, or number A under this is we have, as we're looking at these four beasts that are going to be developed for us, the first beast is like a lion. Like a lion with eagle's wings. And so what we see here, the lion's denoting for us ferocity. This is the king of Babylon. Uh, I'm sorry, this is the Babylonian empire, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And it's like a lion because it's ferocious. And they, they, they rampaged Israel. And they set up a big kingdom. And this part where it has eagle's wings and then they're ripped off and being set up to stand on two feet. If you remember in, da- in Daniel chapter 4, whenever uh, God made Nebuchadnezzar go out and like live as a beast animal for some seven years or so, and then he finally brought him back and he made that final declaration of how great God is at Daniel f- chapter 4, that's the ripping off of the wings and turning him from the beast back to the man in Daniel chapter 4. And that's where he stands up. Uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, Babylon was also frail and overthrown as it stood up to be like a man. And that's when the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and destroys it, which brings us to our, our next one. This next one is ferocious, and that's the whole point of calling it a bear, verse 5. You can put up number B. You have the lion. I'm sorry, the bear. Verse 5, and there came another beast, the second one. So the second beast defeats the first beast is, is the point. Uh, and then the second beast is like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three ribs. Don't make too much about the fact that it's three ribs and he defeated three kingdoms as much as he is ferocious. He will eat this bear. And we know that because he had him in his teeth and he was told, arise, devour much flesh. So the bear devours. The lion is developing as in that he was a lion with wings that torn off and turned up into him and he kind of developed into something. And then now you have the bear, he just devours. That's the Medo-Persian Empire, the one that came after it, King Cyrus uh, that came after it, or King Darius, uh, if you, you know, want to hold that as Darius, I do. But the second one we see is the bear, and it has this insatiable, rampageous uh, type of atmosphere around it where it just destroys everything it can. But it eventually falls to the next empire, which is the, the empire of Greece, ancient Greece. Uh, and so that brings us to our third one in verse 6, where it's like a leopard. And so verse 6, after I look this and behold, another, like a leopard. So it's a leopard, but it's got four wings like a bird <laughs> on it. You know, and all he's doing, by the way, is just like, I don't know what that is. I know these animals that, that are normal. And so it looks like that. That's all I can do is it, 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 it looks like that. That's important, though, as we keep going. Uh, four wings like a bird. And the beast had four heads. So it's got like four little leopard heads. And dominion was given to it. Dominion was given to it. And so the key word for that is dominion. So you've got the leopard developing, devour, dominion. And we know that this represents, as I said, the, the Grecian empire of which Alexander the Great was the, was the ruler. And if you know anything about him, he basically at age 33 took over and ruled the entire world, known world at the time. He destroyed everything from like India all the way over. Like he just had this huge empire. And at age 33, he died suddenly. But by the time of age 33, he ruled the entire world. And so dominion, yes, absolutely. Um, it, the four wings imply for us swiftness, as does the, uh, the fact that it's a leopard. The four heads, uh, universality in that he ruled the, or took dominion all over. And it's even said that after he died, this suddenly his massive kingdom was divided into four different kingdoms and that represents the four heads. That could be, uh, but as I said, it's, it's the Grecian empire. Um, some commentators said it's not just Greece, but you know, Rome took over after them. It could be Rome. There's a reason why they say that is because when you get to the beast, they don't want to make the, the fourth one Rome because the fourth one indicates probably the Antichrist. And so that means Antichrist happened in Rome. I have a little bit different view. I think this is Greece. And when you get to the fourth beast, I think that's Rome and following, you know, this dot, 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 like Rome. And then one day the Antichrist is coming. I think it encompasses all. But some say when I include Rome here and just the entire uh, Antichrist kingdom is in, in the fourth one, but whatever. Uh, it doesn't really matter if we know that, but that's, that's the fourth one, like, uh, like a leopard. And then that brings us to the, the, the most important one uh, of the chapter is in verses seven and eight, this beast, this fourth beast. So look at it with me at verse seven. After I saw this in night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. 
It devoured in broken pieces. It stamped what was left in its feet. It was different from all the beasts that was before it. And it had 10 horns. So you can put up number four. The fourth beast, it has an unbelievable thing. Now notice with me, full and different. And so this is just, you know, an unbelievable thing. Now notice with me. The first three all had like. The fourth one, no like. It's literally this thing that I'm looking at. There's been like that. If you think dinosaurs are real, maybe they're not. Who knows? I'm just messing. So uh, who knows? But the point is, um, he's like, I have seen a lot of animals. And that thing right there doesn't look like anything. It's, it's unlike anything we've ever seen or known in this vision. And it has 10 horns. And so, and a little, little 11th one is going to come out of it in just a second. It's, it's ferocious. It's terrifying. You don't look at it and you think, cuddly, let's, let's, let's snuggle. It's absolutely terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, iron teeth. It's meant to, as, as this is being written to ancient Israel who's in exile, it's meant to scare them big time, terrify them of this. And they're only living under the first beast. They won't get to the fourth beast. So that's how bad it's going to get. And it was bad for them. It's meant to make them terrified. And it said, I consider the horns. And behold, there came among them another horn, a little one. So out of the, after the 10, there's, there's 11th horn. We're going to call him little horn for the rest of the sermon. We're going to call him little horn. Um, and so you have little horn that comes after that. Before which the first three horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, so in, in little horn, it says that he has some things. Eyes like the eyes of man. And a mouth speaking great things. Little horn, not so good. Not a great guy. Um, so let's look at this little description that we have. And let's take some notes on what we see. We know that it's the fourth beast. We just can call it the fourth beast, the terrifying beast. It's dreadful. It's different. And so, as I said, don't miss the fact that there's, a, there's no like here. In that there is nothing that you can imagine that comes close to this. It's terrifying. It's different in that the difference is it's meant to inspire terror and what we know from this fourth beast, which is just a kingdom, right? It's just a kingdom, probably the Roman Empire, but also dot, 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 the, the kingdom and empire that the Antichrist himself will set up one day in the future. Terrifying. It's meant to terrify because the Antichrist is awful. And so it's meant to show us that he will wreak havoc and he will possess a power greater than anything you've seen. And the beast that's this beast, this fourth beast, which is the kingdom, is going to bring forth a ruler named Little Horn. This Little Horn is a dominant ruler. And he has this little deadly combination that's given to him in that he has two little things. Eyes like the eyes, eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. This deadly combination of those things. That he's eyes like the eye of man, intelligent, unbelievably intelligent, and a mouth that speaks great things, unbelievably blasphemy arrogant. He has this combination of these two things where he will influence scores of people. And I believe this man to be from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Antichrist. From Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. Little horn, number 11 horn, on the great beast, I believe to be the Antichrist. And that's generally the way most commentators fall. This little horn guy is all in a class by itself. There's no one like him. He is the last leader of, he's the last leader of all the earth's final evil kingdom. And he is the pinnacle of all evil when it comes to that. Because he is the, the man of lawlessness, the devil uh, possessing of him. One writer says it this way. This empire, the fourth beast, which has little horn as its leader, um, 11th leader, but he comes in there. This empire will conquer all other kingdoms and states, whether they're great or small, neutral or belligerent. It will be an empire without parallel in power and ruthlessness and persecution besides Jesus, right? Jesus is, is way beyond parallel. He doesn't do these other things like ruthless and persecute. Jesus is great. But besides Jesus and all earthly kingdoms, this man, this little horn will be in a ruler all by himself and his kingdom the fourth beast will be unlike anything else ever. There'll be nothing ever like it. And so some say it's Rome, but that's why I say it's not just Rome because that hasn't happened yet. We still have some 176 countries in this world or 180 or whatever we have now. Um, and so many of 176, we had to memorize them all. On the map and their capital without help. Anyway, that was fun. Um, so for a quiz, it's just a quiz. Anyway, um, it was for missions class, so I guess it was worth it. So, um, so they, th some say this is Rome, but it's likely more. So what's the writer 
What's the writer trying to do in 1 through 7? What is he trying to do to us? Dale Ralph Davis says this. <laughs> the writer is trying to scare you. That's what he's trying to do. And not just you, but ancient you know, Israel at the time on exile. He's trying to scare them to say, you're only under the four, first beast right now. It's going to get worse. But don't forget, King Jesus is so huge and so massive and so big, he can just swat these away like a fly in the morning. Like it's no big deal. Um, the writer is not a blabbering, blithely, not blathering, blithely, uh, blithely, I don't know why I did that, history, uh, the writer here. He's not just saying, oh, history's okay, and it's progressively getting better. That's not at all what the writer's wanting to do. He's wanting us to know history is not progressing. The culmination of all of human history will not progress. It will descend. It will get worse. Sure, we make uh, technological advancements, but that doesn't mean we make moral advancements. All of us will descend, not in Christ, but the world. So this is what he says. Rather, he's seeming to imply that all the nations and all the kingdoms are out for conflict and conquest one day and control. All the empires are bent towards domination and devouring. No matter how many people they mangle or much misery they inflict, that's the trajectory of human history. It's meant to show us that it's not going to go well. The history in its trajectory is bleak until Jesus comes again. And then it takes the, if there ever was a 180, it's the, it's the biggest 180 in the world, the better it could, to the best it can get. As we go through human history, as we go through these four beasts, which I think we're obviously in this eventual fourth one around us, um, it will be governed by wicked, wretched sinners. That's why I say the path of history ruled by wretched sinners. It will be governed by wicked, wretched sinners. And um, it's not going towards progress. Instead, it should drive us not towards thinking that the world's going great, but towards total despair. Verses one through eight reinforce the doctrine of total depravity. That's the point. Now that I've uplifted you um, and made everybody happy, here's some application. So for real, it is not the most enjoyable thing to hear that human history is just descending into a pit. But let me give us, I think, two important points of application based on that. Number one, number one is we should pray for our country and our leaders. That's the first thing that we can apply from this. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it says this. Paul writing to, the Timothy, to Timothy's uh, church, and I think it's applicable for us. Since all of human history is going to be terrible eventually, what should you do? You should pray for whatever country you're in for the leader to not be terrible. It's going to be terrible eventually for everybody, but we don't know. For us, it's been pretty good. I mean, considering of all human history for the last 2,000 years, living in America compared to most Christians for most other countries, for most other times, and what it will be, it's been pretty good. And so what we should do is pray for our country and our leaders to stay that way for some sense of time. It'll get worse, but, but still pray for it. And, and we're commanded to. This is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So whatever you call prayer, he's pretty all-encompassing there when he says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. That's, that's all-encompassing when it comes to prayer. I want all that stuff to be done and made for all people. And then he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So pray for every leader for what? For this. Pray for your leaders who are in high positions, for us, our president and our senators and our governors and whatever, and whatever country and whatever structure they have. Pray for those people in high positions that, to what end? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Christians want their leaders to, live, to, to govern in such a way that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And what does that mean? That means that our leaders are governing in such a way that they don't lead us into continual wars. Because when we're in continual wars, generally, most people during war want to not die. And that's pretty much the main thing on their mind is, I hope I don't die today. I want to do everything I can not to die today. And so what you're not doing, die today. So what can I do not to die? But if we have good leaders that aren't living us in rampageous wars, but that makes, sets it up for that the Christian can have what's known as a peaceful and quiet life. This does not mean boring and lazy. That's not what that means. It means peaceful and quiet and, and living a godly, godly and dignified life so that we can actually do what the church is supposed to do. And when there's war, we're hesitant. But when there's peaceful and quiet, we're not so hesitant to do what the church should do. And what is that? Well, notice what he does in the text here. When we have good leaders, 
that provide for us this peaceful and quiet life that we can live godly and dignified lives. Not lazy, but it should lead us to do that. As it says, dignified in every way, this is good and pleasing in sight of God. Watch what he does. He turns it to say, and here's why. Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? When we have peaceful and dignified lives, or peaceful and quiet lives, we are thinking about sharing the gospel more and leading people to Jesus. We're exercising the Great Commission. So application number one is pray for your leaders, pray for our leaders so that we can have quiet lives so that we'll share the gospel more. Pray for your leaders so you'll talk about Jesus more. That's application number one. Because if things are getting worse and they're only going to get worse, then we don't want people to live in, in not just this time, but eventual hell. And so we want them to come to know Jesus so they can hear about this great kingdom that Daniel's proclaiming. So application number one. Pray for our country and pray for our leaders so that we can share the gospel more. Application number two is prepare. That's application number one, pray. The next one, prepare for it to get bad. I don't mean become a prepper and dig a big, huge, like, gymnasium underneath your house where you're going to live if there's a nuclear bomb and you can, you know, you can live down there for 85 years if the zombie apocalypse happens. There's no such thing. Uh, that's not what I mean. I mean, when I say prepare for it to go bad, I mean this. First Timothy chapter four, verse seven. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, here it is. Train yourself for godliness. Prepare for it to go bad. And when all of human history descends morally into decadent living, don't join them. Live godly and holy life. If it's going to get bad, resolve as a Christian, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to train myself for godliness. And then he tells you why. For bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. If you like to lift weights and get buff or run and eat well and get in, and get in shape, awesome. And that is good. How much more then that should you, if you don't just train your body, train yourself for holiness. Even more important to train yourself for holiness than to train yourself bodily. For bodily is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. And it holds the promise of this present life and also for the life to come. And so uh, application number two based on this is prepare for it to go bad. Not because we're going to live underground. No, we're not. We're going to pray for our country. But it's so that we cannot follow our leader's wretched example of tarot decadent immoral living, but instead be the church. We want to live differently. So there is hope as we talk about how terrible it is that we pray for our leaders and we live. Now, I'm going to go into second, the second point here, and we're going to uh, look at chapter 7, starting in verse 9 through 14. And as I said, I'm not going to exposit 9 through 14 much. I'm just going to let you understand how it relates to the chapter, and then Chris will exposit it in two weeks. So chapter doing here is he's, after he just told you about the terrible beasts and how it all is going to go down, he's taken all of his readers straight to the throne room. Here's hope. If you're freaking out right now, here's hope. That's the point. As I looked, thrones were placed in the, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and it came out before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. He had a lot of people worshiping. <laughs> a lot. That's the point. And the court sat in judgment. The ancient of days is sitting on his throne room in judgment, and the books were opened. So in verses 9 through 10, what we're seeing is the Ancient of Days description in the throne in judgment. That's the point of 9 and 10. He's going to give us another description in 13 and 14. And if we have the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne in judgment, in 13 and 14 we have the Son of Man being given dominion, or Jesus being the king. But he takes this little excursus at 11 and lets us know in 11 and 12, by the way, those four kingdoms, those four beasts, here's what happens. So here we are. I looked and because the sound of the, uh, was great words and the horn was speaking. And as I looked, uh, in verse 11, he's saying the horn was speaking. Remember, little horn, the Antichrist, he's speaking and he's doing stuff and he's still ruling and reigning in the fourth kingdom. He says, as I looked, the beast was killed. The entire kingdom was killed and his body destroyed and was given over to be burned. So the fourth kingdom right there in verse 11 is dominated and killed. It's one verse. That's how this exceedingly great beast by the way, he dies. Four, 
I only need one verse to let you know how he goes down. That's how strong Jesus is. Back to verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, verse 1, uh, 1, 2, and 3, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. <sighs> Who knows? So <laughs> that's, that's mystery for the ages, and I'm sure there's, there's more that we could research, but I don't have time. Chris will explain all of that, actually, in two weeks. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so when we get to verse 13 and 14, he's, he's going to show you the second side of the throne. We have the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, and now we have the Son of Man being given dominion in verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, on the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. By the way, just don't forget, Jesus called himself this a lot, especially in the book of Mark. One like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. The Son of Man has given those three things, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, an entire sermon can be preached on this text, and it will be. It's massively Christocentric. You don't have to wonder where Jesus is in Daniel chapter 7. It's not typological. He's right there. There's Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. And so since that's the case, that it's going to be preached in two weeks, I'm just going to kind of point out the essential things from this section and how they relate to the full chapter, and then it'll be exposited in two weeks. But the first thing I want you to see, though, is this. The massively unbelievable abrupt transition between verse 8 and verse 9. <laughs> It's remarkable, right? He just talked about the worst kingdom ever in verse 8. The fourth beast ruled by a little horn, the Antichrist. So he's meant to just, and he's doing all these terrible things. And then he's meant to say the worst possible culmination of all of human history is terrible. Oh, and let me take you to Jesus in the throne room just to make sure you're not, not worried. And then he says, and as I look, the throne was placed. And where's God? sitting down. God's not worried about the fourth beast or a little horn. He doesn't fret over the Antichrist. At any moment, he can take him out. The, the juxtaposition of eight and nine is meant to show us, wow, he's big. It just got to the worst part of human history and ever in verse eight, ancient days seated on the throne. That's the first thing I want us to make sure we see is that the only one that can stop Little Horn's terror-making capabilities, the only one that can do anything about it is sitting on the throne, not fretting at all. Now, the writer is wanting to make you say, glue your eyes to this guy. These verses are meant to help you understand the, the fourth beast and the Little Horn are just nothing for him. He's telling us about the Ancient of Days, holding court, and the Son of Man being given dominion. And he's the one, he's the king that's in control, and he's the one that's going to defeat the fourth beast. So in context, all of 9 through 14 is for Israel, you know, ancient Israel, telling them, you think things are bad, don't worry about it. Look, look, at, look at the throne room. You have a reason to have hope. The Messiah, you might be distraught. I know that everything's bad for you, uh, you who are in exile, but don't despair. Daniel wants you to see heaven right now so that you can remind God is in charge of everything, even your present exile, even our present exile as the church because we're not in heaven and our citizenship is in heaven, not here. Even our present exile, we have a hope. That's all I can do. I can't do any more or else I'll take it away from Chris. So boom, move to the next one. All right, here we go. Uh, a lot more on that. So now that was the point of number two, God's in control of his kingdom, which brings us to point number three, that God is in control of history. And history, by the way, is written so that you understand it's his story. That's the, the word is etymologically constructed to let you know it's his story. It's God's story. History, how everything happens, is God's story. God decides how it happens. So that's why I have, number three, God is in control of his story, which is history. It's going to come up anytime now, right now. Pay attention. <laughs> All right, number three, God, that's my daughter's back there so I can, I can be all sharp. So God's in control of his story and it's the final conflict. It's the final conflict. So what we're doing and we're zooming in here is how Jesus defeats the fourth beast. How Jesus defeats the fourth beast. And so he's in control of his story. That's what he wants us to understand as we look at this. Now, uh, 15 through 28 breaks up into three little segments, okay? And so we're gonna take it segment by segment as we look at it. The first segment, as you can see, is right there, 15 through 18. 15 through 18, and 15 through 18 is just gonna give us this really broad, quick 
general interpretation of the vision we saw in verses one through eight. That's, that's all he's gonna do. Here's a kind of a broad stroke understanding of what you read in verses one through eight. After that, in 19 through 26, he's going to zoom in on that fourth beast and give a pretty detailed interpretation of the fourth beast. And then again, when he's gonna finish by giving you hope. So number one, or number A, 3A, as we're looking at this, general interpretation of God's vision. So the vision you saw in verses one through eight, here's kind of a general broad interpretation of it. And the point that you need to know is that God's people will receive the eternal kingdom. Things are bad, but God's gonna give you hope by giving you the eternal kingdom forever. Verse 15, so he goes back to Daniel in his vision as he's looking into, the, into heaven, and this is what he says. But as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, understandably so, Daniel, and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is, I was, I was kind of freaking out a little bit. <laughs> so I thought I would just do this, you know. Uh, I would just go to the, to the nearest guy around me and just kind of tap him on the shoulder and be like, hey, uh, never met you. Daniel, maybe you've heard of me. I'm in the Bible. Uh, I'm new here. <laughs> Can you explain to me what's going on? That's what happens right there in 16. Look at this. So I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning him. And he told me, and he made known me the interpretation of the things. Probably this person he approaches an angel. I just find that fascinating. Like <laughs> Daniel taps the angel. Explain this. And so he does. And I want you to not miss this. Uh, he tells us, as we read in, four, in 17, the four beasts are the four kings that rise out of the earth. And he's, just, he's done with it. He's done with all four of the stuff. He just wants you to know, but here's the great hope. Human history is terrible. And the whole point is that all those kingdoms are temporary and God's kingdom, Jesus, is forever. And so he says it in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High, that's Christians, the saints of the Most High, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's said so redundantly just to make you understand that what it means there, it's really, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's in the Aramaic, it's really detailed. It means this, forever. <laughs> that's what it means. It's not wanting you to say that it's gonna end. It's, it's forever. So let's look at that sentence because it's, if this stage is a timeline of human history and the middle of the, of the timeline is the cross, we live on this side of the cross because it's on the right side for me. And so we look back to the cross 2,000 years ago and we're saved by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross and we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now we are a child of God living in, in uh, sanctification until we're there. But everybody that lived in the Old Testament is saved the same way. Instead of looking back to the cross, they look forward to the cross. They have the Old Testament scriptures and say, they don't, they don't know the name Jesus like we do, Matthew 121, he'll save his people from their sins. They just know Messiah. So everybody's saved the same way. Whatever point of hitting in the coming Messiah who will save you from your sins or sit, trusting in the Messiah who died for you, Jesus, who saves us from our sins. That's all the saints forever. And what's happened the saints of the Most High, look at this. They shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. Notice who's receiving it, right? Jesus receives it and we possess it with him. That's astounding. That's the point that I'm trying to, God's people will receive an eternal kingdom that lasts forever with Jesus, fellow recipients of the inheritance, which means in heaven, we're not just kind of like the janitors that are cleaning up so that you know the party's going on in heaven and we're just kind of there we're the sons and daughters of the king made to share in the inheritance with the king. We possess the kingdom with him, all for his glory still, but nevertheless for us a pretty amazing thing. We should stop and be amazed at the possessing of the kingdom that we have with Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson writes on this and it just, I can't say it better than him. He says this, Jesus, the one like the son of man is related in a very special way to the sons of the Most High so that we actually share in his dominion. The correctness of this view is underlined in the way that the Son of Man here appears to be everything that Adam failed to be. Adam was a historical individual according to the scriptures, but also he was an individual whose actions carried unique consequences for others. When you and I sin, it didn't have unique consequences for everybody. When Adam sinned, when he sinned, all of mankind fell. And so we all live in, in, as sinners now. So his, his sin, like for all of us, caused us all to fail. That's not what happens when we sin, just Adam. So everything Adam was designed to be, when he fell, we received all of those consequences. Now here's what Paul says, or what Sinclair Ferguson says. Paul expounds in this great detail 
In and through Adam's fall, sin came and death followed to everybody. His actions had consequences for a whole species. So too is it with the one like the Son of Man, Jesus. His con- and that the fall of Adam gives us all the consequences of sin. The victory and conquest of the one who's Son of Man, when he gets the kingdom, means that we also, like that, also get to share and possess with him and all of the kingdom. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And so what we see here in this first one is that we possess the kingdom uh, with him forever. Now, in this next section, he's going, to, he's going to, in verse 19, switch over and get really specific about just that fourth beast. And as he talks about the fourth beast, he's not going to talk about the fact that we'll receive a kingdom. He's going to talk about how Christians will suffer in the beastly kingdom. So number B, you can put it specific interpretation of the fourth beast, 19 through 26. God's people, whenever they live during this time, if, if the end times start right now, <laughs> or whenever they happen, right? They're going to happen at some point. Whenever they happen, Christians, it might be us, or it might be Christians after us. You know, 10 years from now, a thousand years from now. We don't know, but Christians will live during that. And when they do, they will suffer. They will suffer. Indeed, as it says in 1 Timothy, everybody that wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the point of 19, verses 19 to 26, to help us understand Christians will live a life of suffering under then this teeth of iron and claws and bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped everything that was left with the feet. And he had 10 horns that were on his head and the other horn, that's horn 11, that's little horn, that's the antichrist, that's the son of lawlessness that came up before, which of the 10 of them, 10 of them fell. So the 11th leader is the one that took over after all the 10 and he was the one that had all the, had all the power. It says, that horn had eyes and mouth that spoke great things. We've already talked about that. Arrogance and intelligence mixed together where he's just pure evil, but exceedingly smart and able to uh, set up a kingdom that's pure evil, that's worldwide in some sense, that seemed far greater than its companions. He was better than all those other guys. And as I looked, this horn, little horn, is doing something. So right when we get to this little section, we're going to see that little horn, Antichrist, is going to do things to the church. And I want you to see those three things. But I don't want you to forget now, as we've already read in 11, Jesus destroys little horn like it's nothing in verse 11 and 12, right? But here's what he's going to do. During this specific fourth kingdom, uh, Antichrist, little horn, he's going to do things. The first thing he's going to do is right there in verse 21 where he says, little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. These won't be on the screen, but Little Horn's going to do three evil things. Number one, make war on the saints, and he will prevail. If you look at verse 25, in the middle of it, he tells us another way. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. That wear out is just persecute. He will wear out. He will persecute the saints of the Most High, or he will make war with them and prevail over them. Being a Christian during that time will be awful. Because the, you will be persecuted and likely be martyred and killed. He's going to, little, little horn, uh, exercise a type of worldwide domination on the people of God by persecuting them. So what do we do? How do we, how do we think about that as Christians? Sinclair Ferguson says, the people of God then must learn this, that the kingdom of God following Jesus is a kingdom of suffering. Jesus tells us this in the Beatitudes. You know, if we're going to, the eighth beatitude, if you're going to follow him, you're going to be persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He says, and he goes on and Sinclair says, the forces of hell will not prevail against Christians, but they will do everything they can in their limited power to overwhelm the saints. Suffering of one kind or another is integral to being a Christian. We have it pretty good here, but it won't be like that in the fourth beast and his regime. Which means this, for us, for exiled Israels, and for all the Christians that have to go through this, this is what the application means then. It means our gaze must penetrate beyond worldly suffering and history circumstances that are happening to us. Whenever destructive events of the regime setting up us that are persecuting us, we don't concentrate on that. Instead, we penetrate our gaze through that as verse 8 to verse 9 tells us, straight to the throne room. That's what we do when it happens. We look to Jesus. 
That's what Daniel wants exiled Israels to do. That's what Daniel wants all of us to do. When time gets tough, we don't descend into their decadence. We ascend our eyes and look to the throne room. That's the whole point of verse 8 to verse 9. Look to Jesus. So he's going to make war with the saints. And when he does, we look to Jesus. The second thing he's going to do is not just make war with the saints, but it's in verse 25. So let's get to 25. Let's, let's show you how we got there. So uh, back to 21. I looked to the horn, he made war with the saints until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. At the time came, the saints possessed the kingdom. So he will destroy a little horn and God will set up an everlasting kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different in all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, break it into pieces. The 10 horns, those are the 10 leaders until the Antichrist comes. Out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise. Then another, the 11th, the Antichrist will come up after them. He'll be different and he shall put down the three kings. And then we get to the things that he'll do. So we saw in verse 21 that he makes war with the saints. And right here in verse 25, we see that also he speaks words against the most high. That's the second thing he does is he speaks words against the most high. This means he intentionally blasphemes the name of Jesus. He intentionally does it. He doesn't care about Jesus. He claims himself to be the Messiah. That's why he's the antichrist. Um, and he's not, and he blasphemes God. If you keep reading 25, we already saw that in the second sentence where he, or the second phrase where he wears out the saints, but we see the third thing he does, and it is, and shall think to change the times and the law. But I think, I think it's, this guy was right on. I think that's what it means. So not only is he going to make war, not only is he going to speak words against the Most High, he's also going to change the times and laws in that this means he's going to attempt himself to dethrone God. He's going to try to be essentially God most high. And he's going to try to take his place. This is what Matthew 25, I think it's 25, speaks of when it talks about the abomination of desolation. It's when the Antichrist literally sits on the throne and abominates the throne and says, I am God. He desolates it. You're not God. You're literally Satan. It's the opposite of what should ever happen. And so he's going to try to take the place. And not only that, when he changes the times and law, he's going to dictate to the people at the time who they worship, how they worship, and when they worship. And he will change the laws in order to make that happen and change the order of their lives that they'll worship him. So that's what he does. He's, he's a wicked, wicked, terrible person. And so Sinclair Ferguson points us to say, then the people of God must never ever be naive about the reality and the strength and the durability of evil during these times. Some days for Christians might be tranquil. That's what we have, I think, here in 2021 America. But that should drive us to pray for those around us that don't have this. So whenever we have these nice lives, we pray for our leaders, but man, it's terrible for even some today in the 1040 window. And beyond. And so this nice life we have is meant to point us to pray for them. And he continues to say this. So what is this point trying to help us understand? It means what I've already said. The overarching concern of this chapter, chapter then is to focus our attention on the age-long conflict between the two kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. And they are in constant conflict. The kingdom of heaven is Jesus. The kingdom of the world is where we live. And so just when Daniel's anticipating, because he's at the end of the exile, you know, he's thinking, I'm finally going to get back to the promised land and we're going to have our theocracy again and we're going to have Israel. Just when he's anticipating this deliverance of the kingdom from oppression, the form of return from exile out of Babylon, he learns this important lesson. Here it is. Conflict is endemic to this world. Leaders love power. Wretched, wicked sinner leaders want to rule the world. It's endemic to this world. And it will be until all of world history ends. Rather than uh, decrease conflict, it will be perpetuated until all of history reaches its zenith in the ferocious blasphemies of the little horn, the Antichrist. Meaning, history is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. It won't get better. Now, ultimately, it it gets unbelievably better when Christ comes. Now that I've made us all sad again, so here's what it means. So here's our hope, right? Here's our hope then. This means this. Our great hope as the people of God does not lie in the centers of power. 
Our hope does not lie in America being the center of power or China being the center of power or the 1040 window and any country there being the center of power. Our hope doesn't lie in any leaders of this world ever possessing any kind of power. Our hope then is not to build up the kingdoms of this world, it's to build up the kingdom of heaven and to share in the triumph of Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. And so it's not in these people. And that's why we don't put our hope in them because we're not even citizens really of this. We're citizens of heaven. So all of our hope is in Jesus. Everything gets worse. And so we just, our hope's in Christ and the kingdom of heaven and doing its work. And so uh, May of heaven is, it's already established. It's an everlasting kingdom that he's already uh, made. He already reigns and all kingdoms stand against his that aren't a part of his. And he has judged them in the courtroom of God as the ancient of days has. And they are all destined to fail. Even little horn doesn't overthrow Jesus's rule. So that's our hope. Even though history gets worse and worse. And then that brings us to um, this little section in verse uh, well, let's finish 25 because I want to make sure you see this. And they shall be given into his hand, talking about the little horn. They shall be given to his time for, in his hand for time. Notice this funny little way to say it. And they shall be given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. What would you say? Yeah, it's going to be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. And theologians get math crazy on what that means. I just, this is what it means. For a little bit. Short little time. T- little horn will have like short little time where he does something. But then Jesus comes. Uh, but the court will sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away. That's the point. And consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom will be under the whole heaven. And shall be given to all the people and all the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting ke- kingdom and all the dominion shall serve him. So 27 shifts back to away from little horn and back to the ultimate story of everything. Which brings us to our conclusion. You can put up number C. Uh, Verse 27, final conclusion of the vision is this. God's people will be given a universal kingdom that will last forever. And you're like, wait a second, that sounds like A. (laughs) Isn't, Isn't that basically saying the same thing? Yes. A and C are saying the same thing. And he's saying it twice just to make sure you realize you share in the possession of the kingdom with Jesus Christ. Amen, hallelujah, that's amazing. And everybody else, as it says, all other dominions serve and obey King Jesus. And then after that, Daniel's like, I didn't know what to do. So I didn't tell anybody. That's what verse 28 says. Here's at the end of the matter. It's for me, Daniel. My thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. Uh, I, was, I was freaking out. And so I kept the matter in my heart. I didn't tell anybody. And then I wrote it down and everybody in the world reads it. So, uh, but that's what I did. Um, so as we finish chapter 7, um, how does chapter 7 point us to Jesus? That's what you should, the question you should ask as you read any Old Testament scripture and any scripture. How does it point us to Jesus? And I would say very easily. It's not typological in that like the stories of the narrative where Daniel does things and the things that happen to Daniel are similar to the things that happen to Jesus. And he kind of prefigures Christ like David and Daniel and you know, all these other people. The chapter seven isn't like chapter six where it's typological, where Daniel's a type of Christ and points us. We don't need a typological here. It's just, it points us to Jesus because it talks about Jesus directly and tells us how Jesus is going to bring about redemption to save the world. So how does Daniel seven point us to Jesus? Directly to him as it mentions him. And so I just wanna tell us um, how it does that. Jesus in Daniel chapter seven is the ancient of days giving judgment from his throne room as the Godhead. Jesus is the son of man mentioned in Daniel chapter seven, ruling and reigning over all creation. Jesus is not just the ancient of days and the son of man. He's the majestic king riding in on a white horse in the second coming, slaying the fourth beast and the, the antichrist little horn. Jesus is also the exalted Messiah declaring from the bloody cross as he dies, it is finished. Not as only the exalted Messiah, Jesus is the risen Savior, defeating Satan's sin on the cross and then and rising from the dead and telling us in the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So we should go make disciples. Not as only the risen Savior, Jesus Christ in Daniel 7 is the great shepherd. And when he sees the lion coming and he sees the bear coming and he sees the leopard coming and he sees the fourth beast, fourth beast coming, he doesn't flee in fear. He stands there and slays them for the church. Jesus is also the son of God who became the son of man 
in Daniel chapter 7 so that he can identify with us as a man so that he can save us and comfort us. Charles Spurgeon says this, As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. And so we actually possess the kingdom of the ancient of days, the son of man, the majestic king, the exalted Messiah, the risen savior, the great shepherd, and the son of God. It's all about him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, Daniel 7, that points us to you. And while it's filled with apocalyptic language and and can be quite confusing, and we know that it just ultimately of human history before you come has a lot of despair and it shows us not just the sinfulness of our leaders, but reveals to us that we're sinners. It points us to our only hope, Jesus, the son of man who died for our sins, who destroys Satan, sin, and death, little horn. And for us, um, if we're in Christ, applies redemption to us, forgives us of our sin, and ushers us into the kingdom that we possess with you. Amazing. We thank you for that, God. I pray that anybody here that doesn't know you puts their trust in you this morning that they see Christ as their only savior, their only hope for their sin, and they trust in Christ this morning and they become a Christian. We thank you for this amazing chapter that shows us the greatness of Jesus. We praise in Jesus' name, amen.